Welcome to Nemesine, the podcast of the Institute for Research on Women, hosted by Andrea Zerpa and Amina Cuberte. The IRW is an interdisciplinary scholarly hub for feminist research since the 1970s, part of the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Nemesine is the Greek goddess of storytelling and as an archetype represents the importance of oral histories. On this podcast, we center conversations about feminist work and research across disciplines through the ancient oral tradition of storytelling. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of chatting with Basuli Depp, who is an educator, scholar, and activist. Dr. Depp engages with literature, media, and visual culture. As an ICLS scholar at Columbia, she is currently working on her third monograph project that combines a transnational feminist analytic with feminist science studies to forge a critical conversation between climate change and pandemics. As a global scholar at the IRW, she co-founded the International Research Group on Dalit and Adivasi Studies and continues to participate in IRW's weekly seminar. Dr. Deb has been interviewed in journal, print media, conference platforms, television, and web broadcasts. She was invited to offer recommendations on reproductive violence in the Rohingya genocide at the 63rd Commission on the Status of Women at the UN, and has partnered with NYC's Mayor's Commission on Gender Equity to promote the UN's 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. Deb is a member of the NGO Committee on the Status of Women that supports the work of the UN CSW and UN Women and a Distinguished Fellow of the Indian American Intellectuals Forum Invested in U.S. Foreign Policy Dialogues. Thank you, Vashuli, for joining us today. You're very welcome. It has been such a pleasure. You are incredibly interdisciplinary. What has driven you to explore and become an expert in your many fields, and how have you gone about taking on new disciplines? Most importantly, I'm driven by my curiosity and excitement about innovative work. And that is where I look for the logic by having disciplines talk to each other and breaking siloed knowledge systems. It is a really a passion for disrupting existing ways of looking at things. Well, I love what you said, which was, you have a passion for disrupting ways of thinking about like things. Yeah. And I think that's just so brilliant. And um, I, I literally wrote it down as soon as you said it, because that's totally going to stay with me. Your current monograph project centers around climate change and pandemics through a transnational feminist and feminist science studies lens. What can you tell us about this exciting project? So this is my third monograph project, and it is a testament to the fact that the what in my project starts with my observations of the world outside. So I chose two crucial markers of our era, climate change and pandemics, and uh, forged them into a conversation with each other. Now there is quite a bit of work on the two, but not much which bring them into conversation with each other, especially through a transnational feminist lens. And I think prior work you know, because most of my prior work has been through a transnational feminist lens and 
uh, but the rest of it is really unexplored terrain, which I am working on. Uh, now, from my research, I have gathered that the existing conversations between climate change and pandemics have focused on the effect of pandemics on climate change. So I'm trying to bring into conversation my longstanding engagement with literature, visual culture, and advocacy about environmental racism and indigenous rights with my new interest in the medical humanities. A little bit about how I came to this project through my earlier work will probably be appropriate. My first book, Transnational Feminist Perspectives on Terror in Literature and Culture, published in 2014, examined literature, visual culture, and performative arts portraying states of exception or states of terror across the world and transnational protest movements against them. A substantial part of the book examined the direct link among the ecological devastation of indigenous Mayan land, the structures of global finance, state terror, and the Mayan genocide, as well as the contribution of the Mayan leader and the 1993 Nobel Peace Laureate, Rigoberta Menchu, to the Fourth World Movement for Environmental Justice at the UN. My current project on uh, climate change and pandemics is inspired by this earlier investment in ecological activism as well as the more theoretical interests, uh, transnational feminist uh, theoretical interests in my second monograph project on indigeneity and transmigration, which I completed for my IRW Global Scholar position at Rutgers. So that's in a nutshell. I have one chapter drafted and you know, I'm still working through the other chapters. So at this point, I think it will be wise to just give you an overview instead of going too much into the details, because I think I need to sharpen that research more before uh, talking more on those discoveries. Yeah. In your 2019 keynote address at the 8th International Conference of the Center for Media and Celebrity Studies, you called for an us to movement that addresses economic disempowerment resulting from racist and sexist workplace harassment of foreign workers and immigrants in the U.S. How have you seen the Us Too movement develop in the past couple of years? There seems to be a rising consciousness in the legal community about representing workplace harassment of low-waged workers and women of color not just those who are affluent enough to take um, financial risks. I don't think it has addressed, um, any of the forums are really addressing people with vulnerable legal status who are really in extremely precarious situations in workplaces or even legal immigrants. I haven't seen the immigration issue, which I was addressing in my keynote, come up in those. And, you know, I think um, there is a lack of awareness from what I have read so far. When there is an immigration issue, and I'm talking about guest workers in this country, they are also in a very, very precarious um, legal situation. I was a guest worker when I was being harassed as 
I was on an H-1B status when I was being harassed at my work. People who have not gotten their permanent residency and who are on uh, job visas, I, harassment multiplies in a way where it becomes citizens versus visitors. And I, you know, it's not just about gender then, because, you know, if you, if what, what I have seen is women, you know, citizens have gotten behind their male work, uh, male colleagues to support their male colleagues against guest, um, guest worker women, uh, just because they knew that these people could be gone anytime, right? And they needed to preserve their relationships with their men. That intersectional approach is happening in us to movement, but I feel it's pretty unsophisticated. That lens is pretty unsophisticated at this, at this time. Owen Mooney, a British model, has called for an us to movement for male and trans models based upon his experiences of sexual harassment in the fashion industry. He has named fashion designer Alexander Wang as his perpetrator. Now, the fashion industry is seen as, a, you know, it's, it's a high profile industry. It's seen as industry with a lot of money. Models are seen as people with a lot of money. But we have to understand, and that is where the trans, the, you know, the, the intersectional lens comes in. There is a lot of trans people joining the industry at this point, right? And so, just looking at it through a class lens or a race lens doesn't do it, do that kind of justice and nor does it bring that kind of sophistication. During your earlier research and writing on sexual violence in the Guatemalan genocide against indigenous Mayans, you worked with exiled leaders of the revolution as well as various advocacy organizations and sectors of civil society. In India, you also worked on gender-based violence against lower caste and indigenous women with the Human Rights Commission. How have these experiences shaped you as a woman and feminist? As a feminist, it has made me politically savvy about how to navigate through such situations and sharpen my strategies of advocacy. It has enhanced my intuitive understanding of what feminist strategies will work in a particular situation. Overall, it has increased my sophistication as an activist as I drew on strategies from the Global South to diversify my thinking and practice. You know, what it has done on the whole is it has helped me to see through situations of gendered conflict and potentially dangerous pathways in ways I could not see before. I've heard you talk about spending time with monks and thinking about becoming a monastic yourself at one point. This is a wild fantasy of mine, and I've always wanted to ask you more about your time with them. How was it and what did you learn from the experience? So for 12 years of my life, I was educated by the Salishian order of Roman Catholic nuns. And at that time, I was pretty indifferent to it. But later on, I realized that it did provide me with a strong core, an inner com compass to follow the mothership amidst storms, if you will. 
the longing for a monastic life started when I was 14 after the death of my grandfather, which inspired me to read spiritual books. The longing came back after my field trip to post-Civil War Guatemala as part of my doctoral work to research on the Mayan genocide. On returning to Michigan, I joined a community of practitioners guided by Buddhist monks and was subsequently selected to join advanced practitioners at a Buddhist temple under the guidance of Buddhist monks and monks. The practice was pretty rigorous and it instilled in me the ability to keep still amidst difficult experiences because that kind of practice teaches one to detach. At the same time, you're able to do what needs um, your attention at the moment and laugh through it all because you have a reservoir of spiritual resource that you can reach inside for. Another thing that I want to add, and I've seen that um, recently, that you know, I'm able to discern through very um, attractive packages when things or people come packaged in them and get to the core and, um, and the wrapping on the other side might, might be very unattractive. I was trying to think where that came from. I think that might also go back to that kind of training. Can you tell us what a day in that Buddhist community was like? It started with um, intense meditation for hours. And then there was what they call a dharma talk. And then it was more like lunch was always a potluck where all the practitioners brought something. It was very interesting where, you know, you, you could see who are these really individualistic people, you know. The fact that, you know, these monks were coming from abroad and dealing with a lot of um, internationals, but quite a few from, you know, the, the population here in this country, right? Particularly during the walking meditation, people would decide not to walk in sync with the others. We had to walk in a group. And so our steps had to be very measured, as, you know, the congregation really mattered. And I had to seriously rewire my thinking because the, the idea is that you are with like-minded people who are oriented towards a particular spiritual path, right? I remember one woman saying, I don't want to walk, walk with the others. I want to walk according to my own pace. And the monk then, you know, paused and said, um, you can't do that because we, you know, the path is a collective path. When we talk about a congregation, they call it a Sangha. The Sangha is the collective. So we have to all work in sync with the Sangha. So, so I remember that, that kind of, you know, conflicts happened even there, it was not all, you know, like a transcendental mental state. And so after the walking meditation, we again sat down for another sequence of Parma talk, probably by someone else. And, you know, then, then after that, you know, we, we kind of talked among, the Sangha talked among. So 
that would be a full day. Do you find that this like intense meditation helps you focus with your research? Yes, don't think I would have um, been able to complete my doctoral dissertation without that kind of uh, meditation because I came back with, with a lot inside me and I was hardly being able to write. And then when I wrote, one chapter blew up to 153 pages because I was literally processing the trauma of that research through writing. So I think that was crucial in helping me complete. And I think it has been crucial ever since in assessing dangerous situations. I mean, all of it went into building up. I also sense, you know, we talk about energy of places, energy of roots, right? Particularly the corporate world, they talk about this whole dynamic energy and all of that. I think my intuition has become extremely strong. I pick up those energies. I love pop culture and celebrity culture. What pop culture media are you currently into? Any shows, movies, or podcasts that you're obsessed with at the moment? At the moment, you know, last year I turned to English singer-songwriter David Bowie as I dealt with the pain and terror of the pandemic. And I was following a Scottish celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay, when I was cooking during the winter holidays. Lately, I haven't had much time, but a few months back when I was drafting my article on uh, reproductive violence and the legal vacuum around it in international laws and instruments, as part of a project that I began with the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia, I was following celebrity lawyer Amal Clooney. Clooney had represented the Nobel laureate Nadia Murad, recognized for her efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict. Murad herself was sold into sexual slavery by ISIS, as were many women from the community of Yazidi minorities of Iraq. Amal Clooney fights uh, tough human rights cases, which sometimes become life-threatening to lawyers representing those cases. You know, her co-counsel was stabbed in the head um, during one of those cases. Um, so I'm particularly intrigued by her ability to effortlessly move between such a realm and the world of Hollywood, which she frequents because of her marriage to George Clooney. And she, she's a fashion icon. And, you know, having worked in the field of human rights and violence and having worked on the ground, I know how hard it is to make those kinds of switches. Of course, she, you know, she goes through a lot, lot of it. And I have seen her at the Nobel, you know, of course, on camera, but um, at the Nobel, Nobel Convention and um, when her client was speaking. Uh, I mean, she was so distraught when, when she did, and the camera was, spotlight was on her. But for her to move between those two worlds with such grace and, you know, and she's a fashion icon herself um, and constantly under the camera, 
I mean, it's admirable how she how she is able to cope with all of these together and hold all these contradictions together. Yeah, I know a lot of people in my classes because I take I'm I studied journalism, women's studies, and then a minor in political science. So I know a lot of women who really look up to like Amal Clooney. And for those reasons, right, like because she's a fashion icon, because she can juggle so much and she's also like amazing at what she does. So I think that's really incredible that we're talking about her. And for me, holding those contradictions together, here you see so much suffering. And on the other hand, you see so much plenitude and abundance. Mm. You know, I see tourists go to places from the global north and you know really fall apart and so distraught about what they have seen and for someone to move between those worlds and someone who it's she's not unfeeling she's not distant uh, she takes on those emotions you know there there are various ways of doing law right one one is you know you just can't do paperwork and you know but that's not the kind of attorney she is from my understanding and then Yeah, maybe that keeps her balanced, yeah. Our final question is a recurring theme on our podcast. So we like to ask our guests about astrology, and we usually ask what their sun, moon, and rising signs are, if they know it. So we would be curious if you would like to share yours. Okay, so my sun sign is Virgo, cusp. But let's take it as Virgo. And then moon sign is Gemini. And rising sign is Scorpio. What does that tell you about me? Well, first of all, I'm a Gemini moon. So I love, I get along so well with Gemini moons. I think I can speak for the Scorpio rising, Andrea. And then maybe you can do the rest. But I have a lot of friends who are Scorpio Scorpio risings. They have really good, like, bs detectors like they're really good at like seeing nonsense and like looking for the truth and they can just read people very well and um yeah do you think you have those qualities i i I think um i didn't realize that i had it to this extent (laughs) but i don't think in my case it is reading people so much um you know I pick up on that and I think it's about whether I really connect or I'm socializing, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that yeah, only I know whether it's a genuine connection or not. So I, I think, I mean, to a large extent, a lot of people do that, right? But yeah. uh, I think for me, it is very clear. It's like almost black and white where this person falls and but then I don't think about it constantly in the sense of reading it but when I think back I know Scorpios are also mysterious and they're a water sign but they would be described as frozen water so unlike a Pisces like me I would just melt right like I'm, I'm just always very emotional Scorpios have a more controlled way of showing their emotions but they're still very emotional people and virgos i think virgo is a earth sign Mm -hmm. so they're they're, signs yeah yeah grounded i love earth signs they're good people to be around and they're also very particular 
my sister is yeah. a Virgo and she will spot details that no, she'll remember things that other people don't pay attention to. Right. And, and the, 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 see about what you said about the Scorpio, I think, you know, I'm learning from both of you actually. <laughs> no idea. Um, but, but the thing is with the Scorpio, um, now that you were saying it, uh, talking about emotions a few weeks ago, a friend of mine who read two of my poems, she just came back all stunned and said, I was not expecting this gush of emotion from someone like you, the kind of work that you do. Like, there is like really no similarity between the scholar she sees and the creative writer she saw in those poems. And she herself is a creative writer. It just came, came as a real surprise. So, you know, there are times when if Scorpio, I guess, like, and Scorpions let go, I think that comes out because in my case, I was writing those points at the peak of the pandemic. Mm. And I just couldn't think through a political lens because so many people were dying. So the emotions were at the surface. Sometimes nice to get out of that box and look at things which, you know, your intellectual ears might not. Uh, be very receptive to it's a fresh space definitely and I feel like at, at the very least it's a reminder to like contextualize people's experiences you know what I mean like it's just like a, a quick reminder to be like okay maybe there are multiple things happening at the same time with one person it's just a reminder for me not to take things personally all the time yeah 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 no, very very nice this has been a lovely interview thank you so much Thank you for joining us in this episode of Nemesine. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at RWRutgers.